The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sportbox. Your headlines this hour. U.S. stocks rebound, the Dow hitting a new record on the back of strong earnings, while tech tumbles as Federal Reserve Vice Chairman Richard Clarida tells CNBC it is still too early to talk about tapering. I think what the data is telling us now is there's going to be some upward movement as we reopen, but that it won't persist over a long period of time. The White House has backed a waiver of intellectual property rights on COVID-19 vaccines, reversing its original position and setting up a big battle with Big Pharma. Beijing suspends all activities under the China-Australian Strategic Economic Dialogue, criticising what it calls a Cold War mindset in Canberra. Sobgen swings back into the black in the first quarter, as the French bank's global markets business sees its highest activity in four years. The CFO joins us in half an hour's time. And it's decision time at the Bank of England with Taper Talk in focus. We'll break the details live at 1CET and then bring you a special interview with Governor Andrew Bailey at 5pm Central European time. So, very good morning, everybody. Um, I'm just uh, going to dive into some numbers for you before we uh, move on. Um, I'm having a look for the Unicredit numbers. It'd be helpful if I could spell it properly, actually. Uh, so, let's have a look here. Um, first quarter group results. Will the messaging from Unicredit, excellent fees and uh, seasonally low cost of risk underpin strong profitability? The underlying profit coming in at 0.9 billion euros, thanks to a rebound in revenues, uh, as I say, and the low cost of risk here. The uh, bank is um, uh, writing back uh, 15 basis points on the stated cost of risk. Uh, let's plough down the CT1 ratio in at 15.92%. Um, clearly no problem with capital levels. In terms of the guidance, uh, full year 21 revenues are broadly in line with the consensus and expected to be in line with 2019 levels. Underlying net profit expected broadly in line with previous guidance. Uh, for the first quarter of this year, the group delivered revenues of uh, 4.7 billion euros, boosted by a rebound in trading income and record fees. And I think that's characteristic of what we've seen from a lot of these banks, actually, that they've enjoyed an uptick in capital market activity. And we've also seen an uptick in business activity, which has supported that fee income. The uh, group says the continued focus on cost efficiency and the strong 
cost discipline uh, will result in significant operating leverage in the first quarter of operating leverage in the first quarter of 2021, leading to the lowest cost income ratio in more than a decade at 51.5 percent, and that is an attractive number. We've seen a lot of the banks reporting recently with uh, a number in excess of 60 percent. So. Encouraging moves on the cost side. The shareholders will like that. They'll like the revenue line. Of course, the big question, and very good morning to you, Karen, for the financials, is just whether these positive trends around the capital markets can continue. Because we have seen one or two banks, and I think Barclays was one of them, starting to indicate that maybe the thick revenue line is starting to weaken as we approach uh, the full meat of the second quarter. It's a trade-off, isn't it? Good and bad on comparables when it comes to the trading portfolio. But uh, the company pointing out it's waiting for the, the better economic recovery to play out to help out NII. So two parts of the business there, but also transition in the sense of new management as Andre or Cell takes charge. I think the markets are very much looking forward to any M&A that may take place, which could be the next wave, but certainly an important update as you consider the future of, of the business. And let's push forward to SockGen, which has uh, been reporting in the last hour or so. It swung to a profit of 814 million euros in the first quarter, bouncing back from a net loss a year earlier as the French lender's global markets business posted its strongest performance since 2017. The company's equity and fixed income trading units both saw revenues increase, while risk costs fell by more than 66%. And coming up a little bit later on, we'll be speaking to the SockGen Deputy General Manager and CFO. That's coming up at 7.30 CET. Uh, so, in at a billion euros on the net line for ING, which is a decent uptick on where we were on the uh, fourth quarter, where they delivered 727 uh, million euros. The uh, result before tax, then 1.463 uh, million. The capital position strong at 15.5%. Let's get out to the uh, CFO of the business, Tanata uh, Futrakal, joins us. Uh, he is the CFO of ING. Thank you for joining us, sir. Uh, can I just start off by asking you to put some colour on the quarter for us? Um, clearly, strong capital position here and a decent uplift on the quarter-on-quarter netline. Thank you very much. Uh, very nice to be on your show. I think we, we have seen is quite broad-based rebound of our revenue, both in retail and wholesale banking, with strong fee growth. Our cost efficiency programmes are tracking well with quarter-on-quarter reduction in terms of our cost evolution and also quite benign economic situation with our risk costs coming in below our through the cycle average. So very, um, very strong quarter, very broad base, and it shows a clear sign of exit from the current COVID situation for us. And a positive line on the NIMS here about the uh, support and the benefit from the Teltro program, but clearly there is continued margin pressure from the fact that we have negative interest rates in the eurozone whilst you're trying to make a decent net interest line. Do you expect that trend to continue through the rest of the quarter and most of 2021? We do. I mean, despite the uptick in the U-curve, uh, negative interest rates still weighs on, on most European banks, including ING. And we are, of course, taking steps in terms of fee generation, in terms of, in some instances, charging negative rates to our customer base. 
but most importantly, looking forward to continued loan growth in across the world to basically compensate for that compression in terms of liability income. Donato, I saw an announcement to that tune from Belgium, ING Belgium, where you were talking about charging customers with a balance of more than 250,000 euros uh, on those savings. They will now pay a fee. What's the trade-off here? Will some of those customers park the money elsewhere? Yes, it's also, uh, you know, something that we, we have to do. But I would stress that the number of customers affected by this new charging is limited. Over 90 plus percent of our customer still don't get charged negative rates. But there's a trade-off and there's a competitive, uh, of course, comparison with other banks in Belgium as well. And we do that in other parts of uh, our European market. So it's something that uh, I think the market is having to adjust to given the long-term negative interest rate in, uh, in this environment. I understand the pressures you're facing when it comes to margins and trying to, to shore up the business. But do decisions like this fuel money and send money back into the markets where investors can chase much healthier returns? Yeah, I, I think one of the, the key roles that we play is not really to just ask for these negative rates to our customer, but give them choices. And in for certain customer segment, we do encourage them to look at potential investment in investment funds as an alternative to uh, bank savings. And that's what you see increasing within ING as well, where we now have over 170 billion of asset under management from our customer who are transitioning from deposits partly into investment funds. And give us a line, if you could, on the trend you expect on loan impairment. I think what's been interesting through this quarter is we've seen a lot of the banks writing back the provisions that they'd made because the the loans just haven't soured in the way that they expected. What is your plan in terms of provisioning and expectation around loan impairment? Yeah, we, we remain prudent. We have decided not to write back any uh, loan loss provisioning this quarter because we do still expect that credit losses would come when government uh, programs are, are basically taken away. So we have kept, in, in fact, we added slightly to our loan loss provisioning this quarter. But our guidance is that we expect loan losses this year to be lower than what we had in 2020. Tanata, thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next quarter, if not before. Tanata Futrakal, the CFO of ING. And taking to some of the market action, we're seeing dual themes across some of these markets. Commodities certainly in focus as we've witnessed another bounce in the copper price and elsewhere. That's a supportive factor. But if you look at the Australian market, a great attention to play. And that is a suspension of dialogue with China, which is impacting the stock market. As you can see, reversal, seven tenths down. China and Japan returning after a fairly long break. And it is a, a modest dip for Chinese stocks currently. Hong Kong bouncing about a third of a percent and a very strong trade for the Japanese stock market escalating nearly 480 plus points or 1.7%. So a strong trade playing out there. And let's take a look at the US markets as we saw the, the fresh record on the Dow by the close of the session, 34,230. The markets, though, are seeing a little bit of an impact around technology. And this after comments from Janet Yellen about whether interest rates may need to go up. Uh, those uh, warning shots sent by the Treasury Secretary also concerns around uh, what may happen with some of the big pharmaceutical companies that are positioned around COVID-19 vaccines. Given the President Joe Biden has thrown his support behind wavering intellectual property rights. So let's just move on to what we're seeing from the technology names, as you can see, the Nasdaq 
pulling back and the concerns that I mentioned from Janet Yellen that sent uh, some selling into this sector. Microsoft to Netflix, uh, Facebook down 1%, Tesla reversing. You can see Amazon down 1.2%. The big tech stocks, uh, take a look at uh, how they're playing out versus what we saw in the pharmaceutical sector. Pharma stocks also down heavily, 6.1%, uh, fairly sizable. The slump there, BioNTech, and don't forget uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, right at the, the front of uh, this vaccine fight. Novavax down 4.9%. And uh, taking a look at uh, some of the big pharma stocks too in China, where there has been some opposition to this wavering of our IP, 20-odd percent down for some of the big names. A huge fall there, Sinopharm, one of the ones that uh, investors are very familiar with. That is down 8.9%. And a look at how Treasuries are shaping up at this point. I mentioned the, the cyclical favour in the markets around the commodity story, but that is a little bit of a nod to potential inflation down the track. 1.58 is where we're sitting on the 10-year, currently still well off those highs we saw back in March, Jeff. Yeah, thanks very much. And Karen, you mentioned um, the, the comments from Janet Yellen there, and uh, we talked about how she walked back those remarks. But it's interesting how the um, the PR offensive now has been stepped up with Richard Clarida stepping in effectively. Nothing to see here. Just forget what Janet Yellen had to say. The Fed vice chair has uh, defended the central bank's ultra-loose monetary policy, uh, saying that uh, it will help bolster the fastest recovery since the 1980s. Speaking to CNBC, Clarida said he would like to see more improvement in the labour market first. We're still a long way away from our goals. And in our new framework, we want to see actual progress, not just forecast progress. So as we move through the year, we'll get more data. We'll get an employment report on Friday. And as we go through the year and we assess that data, we'll be able to make a judgment about substantial uh, progress. But we're certainly not there yet. Here in the UK, the Bank of England is expected to keep interest rates near a record low when it delivers its latest decision today. Investors will be keenly watching for any update from the MPC on when it may think about tapering its asset purchase program. Uh, the bank will also publish its quarterly monetary policy report with GDP forecasts set to be revised upwards. And I think we get some services PMI out a little bit later, which may help frame the decision when it comes. Jamana and Juliana will bring you the decision as it breaks later today from 12.55 Central European time. And clearly, Mr. Bailey has a lot to say today. He is talking to reporters. Uh, we will have our own conversation, or at least Jamana will speak with the Bank of England governor later. The interview will be played out at 1700 Central European time. And Steve is out on an OB, I believe. Well, uh, at this very moment, he could be chuffing his way up to Scotland. Yeah, I think it's exciting when the outside broadcast. These I thought days. he might take. Uh, I thought he might take the car, but um, I think drive, he's going to get the train. It's about a seven-hour drive, isn't it, from Oh, from at least, at yeah, least yeah. yeah, depending on what the traffic is like when you go around that bit of the M6. It's always quite painful just past Liverpool. Right. Yeah, it can um, be quite congested. Well, let's walk you through the latest. As alongside today's local elections across the UK, voters in Scotland will head to the polls to elect a new parliament at Holyrood. The latest Sky News poll shows the Scottish National Party on course to win a slim majority. An SNP victory could see Edinburgh ramp up efforts for a new independence referendum, something Boris Johnson, his, his government in Westminster, has sought to uh, squash. Now, meantime, well, we will be bringing you more on this, of course, over the next uh, 48 hours or so. The US backs plans to suspend the patent rights of COVID vaccines. 
sending shares in the likes of Moderna and BioNTech lower. We'll discuss that next. Plus, for a look at today's biggest earnings, including that first on interview with the CFO of ING, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Some numbers crossing from Air France KLM uh, for the first quarter. Have no sign of any improvement yet for the airline. They're still waiting to see the first effects of vaccination. That, according to the CFO, for the moment they continue to see late booking behaviour by customers. A Q1 revenue down 57% to 2.16 billion euros. The EBITDA loss at 627 million euros. Uh, the uh, company's operating loss has widened to 840 million euros. And uh, the uh, company, though, saying at the net loss line, that has narrowed to 1.481 billion euros from 1.8 billion uh, a year earlier, uh, which was the loss. So uh, ongoing lockdowns likely to mean difficult start to the second quarter. They expect capacity at 50% of the pre-crisis levels in the second quarter, 55 to 65% of capacity in the, the third quarter. So not much of a step up by then. Further capital and hybrid capital increases under consideration. So this is the key as we talk about the pain to the sector and just whether further support is required at this stage. They say the 2021 CapEx seen below 2 billion euros with fleet investments largely financed. They expects around 500 million euros of restructuring cash out in 2021. So uh, it is still a tale of woe for this particular airline. India has reported a record number of new daily COVID-19 cases in excess of 412,000. Virus-related deaths also rose by a record 3,980. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department has approved the departure of non-emergency government workers from India amid the surge. Criticism of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's handling of the pandemic continues to mount after the country accounted for nearly half of worldwide COVID-19 cases last week. Shares of Moderna moved higher in extended trade as it reported a promising response from its COVID vaccine against the South African and the Brazilian variants. The pharma giant is testing a 50 microgram dose of the vaccine in those who have previously received the jab. The early data found the booster shot increased antibodies against the two variants as well as the original strain of the virus. Shares in several coronavirus vaccine producers, including Moderna and BioNTech, closed Wednesday's session deep in the red. This after the Biden administration said it would support waiving patent rights for vaccines. That decision would open the door to other countries to produce copycat vaccines. This um, has always been an interesting debate, I think, about whether the pharmaceutical companies should acknowledge this as a global emergency 
and acknowledge there are parts of the world which will find it difficult to vaccinate their people because of the cost and whether they should then set aside the profit motive. Up to this point, of course, it hasn't been the case. And we've seen different businesses. AstraZeneca's gone in one direction. Pfizer-BioNTech's gone in another direction. But this is a quite an important decision, I think, if the White House does ultimately confirm that it will enforce some um, abeyance of, of patent restrictions. It does uh, throw the vaccine nationalism story in a spin, doesn't it? And I think you're right to call it a debate. You can argue it from both sides. I mean, there's much good and bad in the debate. When it comes to President Biden throwing his support behind this waiver, it, it was uh, his call in the lead up to the election. Don't forget he wins in favour internationally. He's, he's seeking more multilateralism. This gives him a very strong platform to try and reconnect with other countries on, on many different issues beyond vaccines, uh, but also wins in favour at home with the left. So there are political elements here to this story. In terms of the, the, the challenge that we're facing around COVID, it is a world challenge. It's not a problem just for the United States. And if you look at the situation playing out in India, it is India today, it could be another country next. And if there isn't a world initiative to try and solve the problem around COVID-19, it is still also a problem for the United States when it comes to world growth. So there is an argument for ensuring this waiver applies because you've got more vaccines distributed globally. The other point is when it comes to the, these vaccine makers, uh, they will make profits down the track on some of the follow-up shots. And we keep hearing about boosters for many years to come. They have thought that they would still make profits on that despite any waiver. The other point to, to the other side of the story, though, is that there is concern that if you're not properly funding the research and development that's gone into these very rapid vaccine developments, then you're not going to have the right funding in terms of rolling out production sites globally so you may compromise the process by not having the right funding in place yeah i mean it does on the face of it seem um cruel and bizarre that here we have a country that actually built a pharmaceutical industry that supports production for the rest of the world in india based largely on the generics trade and they um developed a an industry on the back of uh, medicines that had gone off of patent largely. And then, of course, there's been development since then. But we're in a very strange place where, as a result, I think, of a lot of government policy decisions, we now have this terrible tragedy unfolding in a country that has an industry that could respond more aggressively if it were allowed to produce a lot of the vaccines off patent. Yeah, that's right. And we've seen all the, the various decisions around whether some of the vaccines should stay domestically in India to try and inoculate the population and avoid any further escalation in, in the death toll and COVID cases. But I think it's, you know, India today, as I say, but it could be another country another day. And does the United States want to be seen to be standing by while a situation like this plays out as a very population has seen a very rapid vaccination program? And I think it's very hard to argue the case for a more connected world and to have other countries signing up to initiatives like climate change, for instance, when you don't have uh, the support that you're providing through COVID vaccines. So I think this is a really important initiative for Joe Biden and one way he can win favour globally. Uh, there are other ways that you could do this, of course. Um, when you look at historically things like the um, power generating industry, there have been profit control systems in place to say, OK, you, because this is a, a life essential, um, you can make a decent return, say up to 10 percent, 
but not more than that. And there possibly is an argument here for saying that the, um, the pharmaceutical companies should be rewarded for the R&D expenses that they've incurred here. And the fact that they've concentrated on this and suspended perhaps the work on other profitable drug programs while they've um, um, focused on this particular uh, vaccine. The question is, they, they do look a little bit messy to implement on a country by country basis. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.